Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It is Friday, April 7th, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week. My name is Rich Larson, and my co-host today is Joe Moravchik. Good morning, Rich. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the discussion of public policy issues. Each week we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. We do our best to stay away from politics. Instead, we concentrate on research and the expertise of our guests to help us to arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrated policy solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs a gamut on policy subjects, from local, municipal concerns to state and even national-level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. On today's program, we are going to discuss college affordability, and our guests are Steve Poskanzer and Dan Sullivan. Dr. Daniel Sullivan served as the 17th president of St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York. He was professor of sociology from 1996 until his retirement in 2009. At the time of his retirement, Dr. Sullivan was named a president emeritus at St. Lawrence. Dr. Sullivan had previously served as president professor of sociology at Allegheny College from 1986 to 1996, vice president for planning and development and associate professor of sociology at Carleton College from 1979 to 1986, and assistant and then associate professor of sociology at Carleton from 1971 to 1979. Dr. Sullivan is a 1965 mathematics graduate of St. Lawrence University. He received a Ph.D. in sociology in 1971 from Columbia University. In May of 2009, Dr. Sullivan received honorary doctorates from his alma mater and neighboring Clarkson, uh, Clarkson University. And in May of 2010, from the State University of New York in Canton. The emphases of Dr. Sullivan's research and scholarship have been science and mathematics education, public policy issues in higher education, including the affordability of college, and the sociology of science and medicine. He and his wife, Anne, returned to Northfield to live in June of 2013. He is now the curriculum director of the Cannon Valley Elder Collegium. Dr. Daniel Sullivan, welcome to the KYMN Studios and Public Policy This Week. Mr. Stephen Poskanzer is President Emeritus and Professor of Political Science at Carleton College. He served as the 11th President of Carleton from 2010 to 2021. Mr. Poskanzer is Scholar of Higher Education Law, whose research focuses on how colleges and universities seek to promote academic values and achieve educational goals in a complex legal and policy environment. His career as President of both public and private colleges with leadership experience spanning major research universities, a statewide system office, a master's level comprehensive college, and an elite liberal arts college gives him a distinctively broad perspective on the challenges and opportunities facing American higher education. Before coming to Carleton, Mr. Poskanzer held a variety of senior administrative and academic positions at the University of Pennsylvania, Princeton University, the University of Chicago, the State University of New York System Administration, and SUNY New Paltz, where he served as the seventh president from 2001 to 2010. Mr. Poskanzer's scholarship has focused on college and university law, including issues of academic freedom and the involving nature of colleges and universities' relationships with both internal constituencies 
that is faculty, students, staff, alumni, trustees, and external factors including government, media, and the general public. Among Mr. Poskander's publications are his book, Higher, uh, Higher Education Law, The Faculty, Johns Hopkins University Press, 2002. At Carleton College, Mr. Poskander currently teaches courses on legal issues in higher education and constitutional law. He holds a Bachelor of Arts degree from Princeton University and a Juris Doctor from Harvard University. We have had the pleasure at KYNM to have Mr. Poskanzer as a host for some of our public policy programming. In fact, Steve and I have co-hosted programs pertaining to the law, including space law and estate law. Steve, you're on the other side of the table today in studio. <laughs> Welcome to Public Policy this week for our discussion on college affordability. Thanks, Joe. It's going to be interesting to be on the opposite side of the microphone. <laughs> I think this side may be harder. <laughs> Before we get into this, I also want to point out that uh, Dr. Sullivan is the grandfather of uh, a young lady who was uh, uh, who interned here, Kate Kelly, uh, last summer, and uh, Kate... Uh, easily one of the most impressive people ever to walk through the doors and work at KYMN Radio. So uh, we appreciate your, your DNA, Dr. Sullivan, and thank you very much for all that. Gentlemen, let's get into our discussion. In the late summer of 2022, President Biden introduced a plan to forgive college student loan debt up to $20,000 per eligible borrower for millions of Americans. That plan is currently tied up in the courts. What the loan forgiveness discussion did spotlight, though, is the high cost of college education and the difficulty many borrowers have had paying back student loans. In fact, the high cost of an education has deterred some students from attending college. Add in the COVID pandemic, and the result is college enrollment is down. But a college education is significant. College graduates can expect more in lifetime earnings, up to 75% in my research, more than a high school graduate, and college graduates are required to bolster the strength of our ever-changing national economy, more and more reliant on technology. So today we discuss the complexities involved in the cost of a college education, and we also attempt to provide some ideas for how to solve the dilemma of college affordability. Let's break it down where we analyze what institutions can do better and what the government can do better to make college more affordable and how individuals and their families can best prepare for the costs associated with a college education. Let's talk about college institutions first. For both of you, Steve and Dan, let me start by asking, what percentage of our high school graduates should be headed to college? And why is it important that they go to college as it relates to the benefits to our economy and our competitiveness on a world scale? Steve, you wanna start off our discussion? Sure. You know, one of the challenges today is both Dan and I can talk at length. So we're <laughs> going to have to figure out how to, you know, be responsible guests. Um, you know, I don't think of this in terms of a set percentage of people who should be going to college. Um, but it is absolutely certainly the case that college isn't for everyone and it doesn't need to be for everyone. And, you know, with good apprenticeship programs and good human development programs, you can have a brilliant career and be very happy and be successful without a college degree. But the point that you made earlier to me is the critical one. The world is changing. The economy is changing. Jobs that, you know, exist today may not exist 10 years from now. And many of the jobs that are going to need to be filled don't exist yet. In a world that changes that rapidly, that's that fluid, I think that the most adaptable foundation for careers for very many people 
is going to be a college degree, mm -hmm. and especially a liberal arts degree. The types of skills that you should get in college, how to think critically, how to write well, how to pose hard questions, how to construct an argument, how to critique somebody else's argument, how to make intellectual connections from one discipline to another, those types of timeless skills are really, to my mind, their very best foundation, the very best premise for whatever careers are going to be for you. And I do think for very many young people and also mid-career people that are going back and retraining themselves, getting a college degree is the best way to get some of those skills. Not for everybody, but for a large percentage of the population. I would hope that people would want those skills because the market is showing that you will benefit from that over the course of your lifetime. It's a great investment to have those skills. I, I was... Uh President of the board of the Association of American Colleges and Universities, which uh, is a membership organization of about 1,500 institutions, and um, we used to do surveys every every year or two of of employers and uh, especially senior management at, at employers all over the country. And uniformly, they would come back and say the skills that they most look for, the things that they that are hardest to find, are the higher order skills that Steve. Steve alluded to, critical thinking uh, at L, and, um, and urged uh, all of us in higher education to, to do that more and do it, and do it better. Tony Carnivale is a, is a um, labor economist at, at Georgetown, has done uh, research for 20 years on all sorts of things in this area. Uh, one of the things he's, he's able to show pretty clearly is that the jobs that are, that are growing in compensation are the jobs that, that require uh, these higher order skills. And so uh, if, if, you wanna, if you wanna have a job that, that compensates at, at an appropriate level in the kind of economy where we are, you need to have those skills. And that's what colleges are, uh, especially liberal arts colleges, uh, are, are about. Again, I, like Steve, I, can't, I, I don't know what the right percentage is, but I'd also say that you know, your plumber, your electrician needs those skills. Mm -hmm troubleshooting skills, the ability to analyze and, to, and figure out what's wrong and how to, and how to fix it. Those, those, and you need practice at those skills. They don't just, they don't just come automatically. You need, right. to, be, you need to be taught, and you can be taught through, uh, through apprenticeships, uh, to watch, watch somebody who does those things well. That's what happens in college. If you're in science, you're you, uh, at a place like Carleton or St. Lawrence, you're, you're going to be doing research with a faculty member and observing how the faculty member thinks uh, about science. So that's the context that I would put it in. And it's not just a local or individual context, it's a global context mm -hmm. because these skills are necessary for the American economy to be able to compete successfully against European, Chinese, all around the world. Absolutely. Um, we need to develop our human capital and this is part of how you do that. Right, okay. So with that said, um, is our higher education model in need of reexamination? Uh, Dr. Sullivan and I uh, were talking before the show. Um, I have concerns with, with the escalating costs of college that um, college is eventually going to, we're going to go back to before, life before the, the GI Bill. And uh, it's, college is not going to be accessible for everybody. It's, uh, it's going to be something that is only for the privileged. Um, this is my concern. So in my mind, we obviously have to do something about affordability. Um, but uh, I, I know, Dr. Sullivan, you have some, uh, some, some things to say about that. My question is, though, what are the new ideas out there? 
I think the uh, uh, the first thing I'll do is, is to frame frame the question a little bit. Uh, sure. the, the affordability is the right word, uh, but affordability is a, is a, a combination of how much college costs and how much how many how much people have uh, to pay for college. And uh, one of the really serious issues that that uh, is the case in uh, in America and also also globally. This afternoon, I'm teaching a course with an economist uh, from Carleton on capital in the 21st century. Um, the Incomes of the bottom half of the population in, in the United States and really haven't grown in real terms for 20 or 25 years. The incomes of, of uh, everybody else have grown, but especially the incomes of the highest 5% or, or 1% have grown dramatically. But even, even in addition to that, 40% of the American working age population has no capital, doesn't have a house, doesn't have any savings. Forty percent. Forty percent, man. And and uh, the the rate of return on capital is about five percent real, whereas the rate of growth in in wages real when the economy is going steady is on on the order of one to two percent. So that exacerbates the inequality. People with uh, assets with capital can borrow. They can they can borrow against their houses. Mm-hmm. They can they can mm-hmm. they can use appreciation in their stocks. Uh, to, to to pay for to pay for colleges, not just about income. Now, so I just say that, that they're, they're on the on the cost side, um, there are uh, also uh, complexities. The uh, colleges and universities employ a very large percentage of a very large percentage of their employees, or hi- have to be highly educated employees, and the market for. Uh, Higher education or high, highly educated em- employees has has uh, have become very competitive, and the and the and the costs are high. Colleges and universities don't pay as well as as the market in general, um, and so that makes it even even harder. But it's tough to es- escape that unless you envision a kind of higher education that doesn't have any people, right? That's that, that's essentially automated. And I can assure you, from my 50 years in this in this work, that teaching critical thinking, teaching teaching students how to reason and analyze, is not something that's that's going to happen through through AI uh, very very easily. Right. So I don't see that we can escape that. Uh, colleges have to be prudent. They have to be disciplined with their resources. Obviously, they have to they have to do the business like things uh, efficiently and effectively and well. There's no excuse if we don't do that because that's that's something you can do if you choose to. Um, but escaping the the, the highly educated um, employee problem is is not going to be simple. I don't see that going away. I'd add two points. Um, I think Joe is exactly right. The way to think about affordability is a kind of a tripartite effort. There is clearly a role on the part of colleges and universities to be efficient and wise and productive, and there's work that we can do in this Mm -hmm. realm. Mm -hmm. Um, There's clearly, I believe, a role for families and students. Mm -hmm. You know, how much should they invest in their college education? And we'll talk a little bit later about why I feel very strongly that you should view this as a lifetime investment and not a discretionary purchase made out of your income at any given moment in your life. And there's also a role for the government and for private philanthropy mm-hmm. to support colleges and universities. And that partnership between those three actors is really how we're going to attack the affordability question. But, Rich, I do think it's always wise to keep in mind the sort of nightmare scenario that you described, which is one of the things that worries me the most about mm-hmm. American higher education right now. It has been 
wonderful to see in the 70 years since World War II with the GI Bill and more access to education, how far we've moved in a direction towards universal access to higher education for people that want it and need it. It would be tragic and awful if we moved away from that or even worse, maybe moved to a radically bifurcated model where a small set of very talented people, no matter where they were, no matter what their backgrounds, get a precious, hands-on, special residential education while the mass of people get some sort of, you know, credentialing online process. The gulfs that would be created in society and the consequences for American democracy, to me, would be very daunting. It's a recipe for disaster. I think so. All right. Well, uh, should should colleges be run more like a for-profit business? Um, If not, what are the characteristics that that, that make colleges... Different from for-profit business. I'll take a shot at this one first. Okay. If that's okay. All <laughs> okay. right. So make no mistake about it. Colleges and universities are in a business. You know, uh, I used to be on a hospital board where the CEO of the hospital used to say, no margin, no mission. And that's true for colleges and universities, too. At the end of the day, you have to have a budget that balances or you're not going to stay able to achieve that mission. Yeah. But we're not a for-profit business because we work on a different horizon and we have different constituencies that we answer to. There aren't shareholders the same way that there would be with a corporation. We have a responsibility to broader society, to our students, and to our alumni. Mm -hmm. And you're not looking at a quarterly profit and loss statement. The impact of what you're doing, the education you're giving someone, plays out over 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It's not so easy to judge on a quarterly basis or an annual profit and loss statement how you're doing. Okay, We need to keep those things in mind. But understanding that the product that we are producing is used in wildly unpredictable, uncertain ways, that it is hard to distill into just monetary terms or just consumption terms. It is inescapable, nonetheless, that colleges and universities have to be efficient, thoughtful, non-wasteful, and very mindful of the costs that they are asking these other partners, families, students, and the government, or philanthropic donors, to contribute mm-hmm. to this enterprise. Mm-hmm. You can't be irresponsible in those ways. I'll, I'll add uh, another dimension to it. I mean, Steve has mentioned that they're, they're not profit-making. Mm-hmm. Uh, a profit-making business tries, uh, has to produce a good or service uh, uh, and sell it mm-hmm. at a price greater than it costs to produce it. And that's their incentive is to is is to do that, and when that's when that's the uh, the goal of the goal of the the organization, um, there are other incentives that come along with it. The incentive to grow, you know, the more you can sell, the more money you make. The more people you can sell to, the more products you can make. The mm-hmm. more, the more you, and so uh, that is uh, growth as a is a is an important uh, um, feature of that that kind of in in a college. Uh, just the opposite is the case. Uh, colleges uh, produce a, a product, uh, an education, and they sell it by definition for a price lower than than what it costs. And there's a subsidy uh, in there. Mm-hmm. And that's true at every institution in the country, every public or private, country. rich or poor. Depends on and just depends on where the subsidy comes from. In the public sector, it comes largely from state private colleges. It comes largely from 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 fundraising. 
But the incentives are just the opposite. If you grow as a college, uh, you, you, not, you not only have to uh, create the capacities to do, you have to locate the subsidy necessary to add students to it. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, because otherwise you would dilute the product and the product itself is what, is what, you're, what you're selling. So the paradox is just the opposite of, of for-profit corporations. There's no incentive to grow. And that's why if you look historically, at institutions like, like Carleton and St. Lawrence, they grew only very slowly and only when uh, important things happened in the, either in the, in the government for public institutions or in the financing, the financial capacity and willingness to give of donors mm-hmm. to supply a substantially greater subsidy allowing you to preserve that difference. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. There's, there's no, no incentive to, to grow. Another difference is that Colleges and universities, uh, the, at colleges and universities, the students are one of the inputs uh, to get to the outputs because one of the things that we know is that students are teaching each other all the time. Yes. Sometimes yes. they're teaching good things, like, like um, uh, my granddaughter is at Carlton right now, and I can tell you that her, her discussions with her friends, they're, they're, they're about chemistry. They're about all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are places where discussions are primarily about beer. And so, so, the, yeah. so there's a pure effect no matter where you go. But that's at every institution in the country, too, by the way. probably. <laughs> but but what, what that means is that colleges, uh, uh, the, the better your students are for the purpose of teaching other students, the better your education is, the better your product is. And so colleges compete for students. They compete to enroll sure. the students who will make the biggest difference in the education of others. And Dan's point about competition is critical. Colleges and universities are in a hyper-competitive Hyper market. Competitive. No hyper-competitive. Sure. There are probably more colleges and universities than perhaps the market is telling us there need to be. Mm-hmm. They compete intensively for students. They compete intensively for faculty. Research universities compete intensively for federal research dollars and for corporate support. We're always competing for philanthropic support. That, competent, that competitive pressure forces institutions, I think in a good way, to constantly be thinking about how to distinguish themselves, how to offer an educational experience that is different and valued compared to what your competitor peer institutions are, that keeps us on our toes. This might be a bit of a cynical take, but is the, the, the result of that then... You know, as as an alum of St. Olaf College, I am constantly being uh, asked for money, as uh, we all are from our alma maters. Sometimes it feels like the 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 uh, the product that you're talking about is the student who are the the college is now sending out into the world, hoping that they will do incredibly well for themselves, and then money of some of that money will flow back to the school. Is that? I'm entirely comfortable with that, okay? (laughs) Okay. Because here's the value proposition. You come to Carleton, and we are going to give you an education that's going to change your life, Mm -hmm. that is going to open up opportunities you never conceived of before, introduce you to new fields of study, Mm -hmm. to people that you will learn from, for professors that will be mentors. But that education is only possible, as Dan noted, because there's already been a 160-year tradition of philanthropy and support, and this is the bargain that we make to you. We're going to change your life in great ways. 
but someday we want you to help us pay it forward so that next generations of kids can get that same life-changing opportunity. So, yeah, that is definitely part of the long, in St. Olaf's chain, a black and gold line, okay, <laughs> that makes it possible for future generations of Olies to grow the ways that you did. Right, right, all right. Gentlemen, when I attended undergrad in the mid-'80s, I could work a summer job and work a job during the school year and for the most part, pay for tuition and living expenses. A lot of eggs and peanut butter and jelly, but I, I can make it work. I had very little college debt. But the cost of a college education in the decades since has accelerated. What are the reasons behind that acceleration? Is it, you know, classrooms are no longer blackboards and erasers. They have the latest in technology. Has technology moved that overall cost up? Or is it? This upgrade in facilities and amenities, new dorms and dining halls and recreation facilities and the cost to maintain them. Maybe it's due to the increase in demand for support services such as mental health care, financial aid, business offices, diversity, equity, inclusion. What are your thoughts about the reasons for the acceleration well, of the cost. Let, 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 let me just start with the, the main one that you can't escape. There, those, other, those other things are important. Each of them is, is, uh, deserves, uh, deserves a response. Um, if you could see uh, a graph that my colleagues and I have I've shared, look at, look at the real uh, cost of college growth uh, between 1945 and 1965. There's a steep increase in the, in, the cost of, in the cost of college during that period of time. Then for about 15 years, the real cost of college was, was flat or declining. And then starting around 19, 1980, mm -hmm. uh, began to go up again. So the real question is, is uh, I think the answer to why is, the, why is the slope so steep, we've already talked about it. It's, that it's, it's because we're, we're highly educated, labor-intensive uh, institutions. In and the flip side, that's the, that's the, the, that also explains the 15 years when it didn't grow at all, um, I think you know that the, uh, the birth rates in America took off after World War II, mm -hmm. and so and so during that during that period of time, there was a huge increase in the in the demand for college. And then what happened? Uh, and a huge increase in the demand for te teachers and faculty. In, in other words, so the, their price went up during that period of time. Mm -hmm. Then the the first post post-World War bursts began to hit the job market around 1965, 68, 69. So all of a sudden, the supply of highly educated man manpower grew dramatically. So, and not just not just for colleges and universities, anybody who was employing highly educated manpower. Aerospace, defense, be all Benefited from mm -hmm. the fact that there was, the supply was greater than the, the demand. And so, so faculty salaries and other salaries uh, uh, could go off on some tangents there. And then after, uh, then what began to happen is the demography uh, began to go down. The 18-year-old population began to decline around 1983 or 80, 84. Um, but on the on the on the manpower side, the economy then began to grow, and and the jobs were in highly educated areas. So the competition for the kinds of people we employ. So. Mm -hmm. So it's really all about supply and demand of mm -hmm. highly educated labor that that explains that period of time when you were in school, which which uh, where the real cost of college was was essentially constant. And I don't see that changing again unless we're willing to 
agree as a, as a country that our aims and objectives for college do not include the kind of education we've been talking about here, which is, which is very people intensive. I'll add a couple of points. I think Dan's exactly right. Um, there's a really good book about this, a little bit dated now, called Why Does College Cost So Much by mm -hmm. Archibald and Feldman, and it's worth reading. It's written for a lay audience. Um, and maybe the critical point that Archibald and Feldman make is that in many industries, technology has made it possible to reduce the cost of providing the product. You know, in banking, as opposed to paying tellers, you can use technology and have an ATM machine. Mm -hmm. In, you know, other insurance, you can do things online. Colleges and universities don't work quite the same way. You know, there's good economic work done by Bowen and Baumol in the 60s and 70s that analogize colleges and universities to like a symphony quartet. You know, it still takes four musicians to play mm -hmm. a Mozart quartet. Right. It still takes a professor to teach that critical thinking skills, to teach the sort of, you sure. know, uh, writing and intellectual leaps that we spoke about earlier. It's not been easy to squeeze savings out of technology. And in fact, as Joe alluded to a few moments ago, by virtue of weaving technology into our classrooms and libraries and what is taught at institutions, the price has actually gone up, but we're able to provide a better, more technologically rich education, but it hasn't led to technology-driven cost savings. And it's not, and it's not just the, the, uh, that there haven't been savings in the teaching and learning process, but the jobs that, that uh, students have require the use of sophisticated technology. They have to be able to experience and be taught uh, how how that how that works how how to how to perform in an environment mm -hmm. like this one what are, what are we're sitting around a, right. a table full of technology yeah yeah and it sort of speaks to your point what Steve was saying your, your point that that AI is never going to be able to replace uh, college faculty I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Um, gentlemen, I, I recently read uh, a top 10 list of the colleges with the largest endowments. Ha Harvard, Harvard's the big one. They got $53 billion. Uh, Carlton's very respectable with a billion dollars. Um, I have no idea what we're saying all of it. It ain't no billion dollars. Though. Over $700 million. Well, okay. All right. Well, that's good. It's pretty, you know, um, yeah, yeah. What is, uh, what roles though, and we've talked about this now a little bit, what roles do uh, philanthropy and endowments play in reducing the overall cost uh, of an education and can colleges do more with philanthropic gifts um, to reduce student costs? Should they do more? Well, I mean, uh, obviously the, what we talked about earlier, the difference between the cost of, of production and, and the um, amount that students pay in tuition has to be made up from, from someplace. It's mm -hmm. either from endowments, endowments are invested funds, that exist in perpetuity, but we also raise money uh, that's spendable on an annual basis, and Carlton is outstanding in that in in that regard. So, uh, and I've been I've been fundraising uh, in and around colleges and universities for 40, 40 years, and and so I you wake up every morning. Really good I, at it. <laughs> I wake up every morning with the, uh, and so you can always do more. But colleges differ in the in their capacity to uh, to raise to raise gifts in two ways. One is uh, the relative wealth of their alumni and parents, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's one. And the second is that um, uh, charities can't raise money just by being needy. Yeah. They have to deserve it. They, right. have, they have to be performing 
And so, so the very and institutions are performing at a variety of different levels. And I can tell you it's very tough to raise money for a poor performing, needy, uh, needy, co needy college. And um, so, so yes, it's important. Uh, the thing I would mention is if you, uh, it's, one of the things that's hard to find uh, are audited financial statements for public institutions. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if you if you do find them, and I can I have found them in various places, I've done some, some consulting. You see that the the annual uh, cash subsidy that comes from the state is is the equivalent of a of a very large endowment, and so the the public institutions in Minnesota don't raise as much money as we as we raise, but they do have access to an endowment equivalent. Sure, and that's important. I don't I, I think that's an absolutely essential piece of American higher education, and I, and I hope I hope they get more money. Well, instead. frankly, we'll I, I don't mind about my, this in a moment. Yeah. Oh, Rich, I, I was just going to say I don't mind my tax dollars going to that either. So anyway, Steve. Uh, you know, and increasingly public institutions have become very sophisticated in their fundraising as well, and mm -hmm. some of them have massive endowments. Mm -hmm. Interesting, trivial point. Harvard does have the largest endowment, but it's actually not the richest university. What you really want to look at is endowment per student. Oh. Harvard's mm -hmm. big, but Princeton's much richer than Harvard when you oh. look at endowment per student. That's there are a lot of crimson people turning bright crimson right now. <laughs> That's okay. As a Princeton person, I don't mind making them unhappy. But the, the other point I would add, and this plays off of something that Dan said, I think philanthropy is absolutely critical for both public and private institutions, but what you raise the money for is essential. And to me, there is a huge difference between raising money for things that go to the absolute core of the mission that mm -hmm. keep it affordable, like financial aid or endowing faculty chairs just mm -hmm. so that you can have the right instructors versus raising money for things that are much more frivolous or less central. The challenge with fundraising, of course, is that it's not your money. The right. money belongs to the donors, and they get to give to whatever is compelling to them. Right. There's no obligation of anybody to give a gift. But where you hope to find a happy, lovely, golden marriage is where the institution's needs and the donor's desires and the things that matter most to them line up well. And I think that happens very frequently. And it's our job as fundraisers for institutions to try and make that alignment. One of the things I'm most proud, about, proud of when I was fundraising for Carleton was I was able over two or three years to talk a donor out of uh, giving Carleton a large gift uh, to start a polo program. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. I'm grateful. Okay. And one of the things I was proudest of, I ran a big campaign at Carleton that was focused especially on endowment mm -hmm. because in the long run, the healthiest schools, public or private, the more of your operating expenses that can be covered by the endowment in perpetuity, growing to cover inflation, to know that it's always there, the more secure that institution will be. By the time I finished being president of Carleton, maybe about 30% of our annual operating budget was covered by endowment. Hmm. But, you know, at Princeton, it's 70% of My their goodness. annual operating yeah. budget is covered by endowment. You know, the closer you can get to that, mythical 100% covered by endowment, then you're really <laughs> strong forever. Hmm. Folks, for our, our listeners, you are listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Rich Larson. My co-host is Joe Moravchik, and we are talking today with uh, Carleton College President Emeritus Steve Poskanster and uh, 
St. Lawrence College President Emeritus Dan Sullivan. Um, a couple of uh, president, well, there we go, a couple of president emeritus uh, about the topic of college affordability. Let's transition to discussing the government and the current state of the economy as it pertains to college affordability. In our first segment, I brought up the fact that in the 1980s, a college education was much more affordable. But what I was paying for undergrad tuition, room and board, really didn't account for the true cost of that education. Back then, did the government subsidize education at a greater rate? Has there been a decline in public appropriations for education? And should the government be subsidizing a college education at a greater rate now? Well, remember that 80% of uh, uh, undergraduates in America go to, go to public institutions, and, let, and the government is subsidizing primarily uh, public institutions. Um, there is some subsidy, government subsidy, that comes in, typically in the form of uh, state scholarship programs that private college students are eligible for, but, but government, government support for education, not, not research, uh, is, is focused primarily on, on public institutions. And in, in, in fact, that's, it is the case, though. The, the level of state subsidies for public institutions in, in the country has declined steadily for the last uh, 25 or 30 years. Uh, and I can I can tell you it's I think Steve and I would would agree it's re, it's it's tough to be a college president even at a at a financially stable and uh, it's really tough uh, to to try to do education the right way in most public institutions the cash isn't there they all the flip side was that they, they there are tight controls on tuition growth right to keep it mm -hmm. to keep it affordable so um, what happens is uh, uh, Full-time faculty get replaced with part-time faculty. Part-time faculty mm -hmm. aren't on campus to meet with students. They're not on campus to, to, to do all sorts of other things. It's a very tough. It's a, and so as a taxpayer, um, I, I would be a lot happier if, the, if the, the, his, the, the earlier historic level of subsidy for public higher education uh, went back to normal. I agree with Dan. Um, you know, I used to be president of a public institution. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what was extraordinarily hard about that was your largest revenue stream was tuition, and that was controlled by the state. So the university mm -hmm. did not have the ability to raise its price because the legislature mm -hmm. controlled that. It was driven by politics. The largest expense that you had was personnel. And you didn't control that either because these were statewide union-negotiated contracts that the governor's office mm -hmm. would negotiate. So you were trying to run a business, like we spoke mm -hmm. about, where you could control neither your principal revenue stream nor your principal expense. That's really hard to do. The underlying point here is that education is both a private good and a public good. When you go to college, you grow and benefit in ways that help you personally and will enable you to earn a larger income later on. But you also generate benefit for the public at large. A well-educated citizenry is able to have a more productive economy, to be more involved in voting and civic life. And so the traditional bargain has been that the state has been able to subsidize at least some measure of education because this public benefit is worth the public expenditures. 
when the governments, state or federal, dial back their support for higher education, that bargain gets frayed. Mm -hmm. And because the costs are still there and for the reasons we spoke about still rise, that means that these other two parties in that triangular partnership, the families slash students, or the institutions themselves are going to have to find a way of filling that financial gap. State appropriations for education have gone down, and at the same time, the federal Pell Grant, which makes it affordable for students of low income to attend college, has also not kept pace with inflation. The maximum Pell Grant today is only $7,395. That doesn't cover nearly the same percentage of a college degree cost that it used to. 30-some years ago, uh, you could pay for college as a low-income person with mm -hmm. your Pell Grant. You could pay tuition with it in any of in any of it. That's not even remotely possible uh, these days. And that, uh, you know, to jump ahead of that, I think that's, that's the most important federal uh, higher education priority that I that I see. Pell Grants go, they're, they're need-based, and they're, they're, the money primarily goes to the bottom 30, uh, 30 to 40% of the population. And uh, the legislation already exists. You know, you don't have to pass a law uh, to get it done. You just have to decide how much to spend. And, and we're going to talk about other things, but, but I'll just say, say right now that, that my priority, and I'm, and I'm sure Steve's and just about anybody else, if, if for the, the role the Fed should, should choose to play is not to expand loan programs, but, to, but just accept the fact that you've got to, you're not going to educate uh, 30 to 40 percent of the population who could be educated and could become more useful and effective citizens unless, unless we accept the fact that they can't afford it without uh, a serious Pell Grant. Mm -hmm. Right. And that actually, uh, just for two minutes, I want to take a deeper dive into Pell Grants. Uh, tell us, where did the program come from? What was the impetus? And, and, and really, I mean, how does the overall program affect higher education today? I mean, we're, you know, we're getting there, but just fill in the blanks here. Uh, Pell Grants are named after Senator Claiborne Pell, who was a Republican from Rhode Island and a strong supporter of higher education. Mm -hmm. The program had actually existed but it was named to honor him because of his leadership in education. The notion is very consonant with, like, the GI Bill, that mm -hmm. education should be affordable to people who don't have wealth and that the federal government should make money available to help you pay for college, need-based, always from day one. So wealthy or middle-income families are not eligible for Pell Grants, but for kids or adult learners who are going to school that don't have the resources on their own, that don't have the capital that Dan was talked about. This is the federal government's way of stepping forward to make education affordable. In the same way that the states historically stepped forward with formal appropriations for the University of Minnesota, Central mm -hmm. Connecticut State, you know, Texas A&M University. But the federal Pell Grant program hasn't grown over time, and state appropriations haven't grown because both state and federal governments have made different priority choices about what they wanted to spend money on instead of education. What role does inflation, higher costs for manufactured goods, and stagnant family incomes play in the challenge of college affordability? I think we've talked uh, about stagnant family incomes and, and the, the lack of capital for, for a lot of people. Uh, I mean, inflation is, um, is a complexity for the, for the economy. In some respects, inflation uh, is, is a good thing. If you have, if you have debt, <laughs> you're, you're paying your debt off at a lower price than its, than its nominal, uh, nominal amount. Um, 
to the ex to the extent that inflation affects uh, uh, incomes and costs simultaneously, um, I don't think it's I don't think it's that it's that critical because mm -hmm. because what 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 goes on is a uh, people, uh, corporations, and colleges try to try to make up for the cost of inflation by increasing their increasing their salaries and wages, and and uh, of course, paradoxically, the uh, to to get inflation under control, what the the policy options that the government typically has involve putting people out of work, and so uh, and uh, causing houses not to be built, and and so and causing people not to. So, and that may be necessary, but the paradox of it is that it, is, it, it uh, may slow inflation, but it also, it also has a powerful impact, negative impact on people's ability to buy anything, including college. Um, Steve, you have, you've touched on this, but I want to I uh, get your thoughts on it. It, it. Is it reasonable as a lifetime investment to take on some indebtedness for a college education? And what... What do we call a reasonable, how do we define that a reasonable amount of debt? It's a great question. So I may take a position here that may not always be politically popular with everyone. My That's short, why we have this show. Steve. Okay. My short answer <laughs> is yes. Okay. I think that you need to think of a college education as a lifetime investment that pays out again, as I mentioned, over many decades in the future. The worst thing you can do is think of this as a purchase that you make out of discretionary income that you happen to have at the very moment when your kids or you are at a college going age. Mm -hmm. If you think of a college education as something that has 40, 50 years of benefit to you, you should really analogize it to you know, a mortgage on a home or, you know, and certainly not to a price of a new car that you mm -hmm. would be buying or a new washing machine. So if you're buying something that is going to benefit you for 40 or 50 years to pay for it over a longer time frame to spread out the cost of that and to view it as an investment that you're making in yourself is entirely appropriate. I also believe, and this is more controversial, but I think Dan and I are in the same place on this one, but correct me if you disagree, this notion of people having some skin in the game, some mm -hmm. investment in your own education, seems right to me um, mm -hmm. and seems consonant with American values and with this notion that education is not just a public good, but also something that's going to benefit you personally. Your income will be greater over the course of your lifetime. You know, it doesn't seem wrong to me that you should make that type of investment, but taking on a modest amount of debt to do that, yes. How much debt? I don't think the debt should be so much that it limits what you want to be studying in college. I don't think the debt should be so great that it prohibits you from someday buying a house or buying the car. But, you know, at, at Carleton, the average indebtedness over four years of college for students, of students that need to borrow, has historically been under $20,000, okay? That's like the equivalent of buying a car, okay? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Except the car is going to wear out in six or seven years. That education you're buying is going to last you for 50 years. Mm -hmm. Having that type of indebtedness over four years does not shock my conscience at all. People that are $200,000 in debt walking out of college, and you got to wonder why they're doing that, okay? 
that's not an appropriate level of debt. Right, right. Is that still, I, I don't know if you know, the, you have the answer to this. Is that still the case at Carleton? Yeah, it's still okay. the case at Carleton. Right, Carleton, right. again, but Carleton is blessed in this regard because of the endowment that we Truth. spoke about earlier. Right. Carleton is able to give more grant aids out of its own institutional dollars to supplement those Pell grants that aren't growing over time. And the combination of Carleton's institutional aid and the Pell grants mean that you don't have to borrow as much money when you go to a place like Carleton, but not every institution is able to do. Yeah, it's at St. Saint, Saint Lawrence, that, that might be $28,000. Okay. $28, Which is still a great deal. It's still a great deal. But uh, it's, it's also, I've talked to uh, people who are angry about the kind of college debt they have, and there's, there's some, uh, some of it comes from choices that, uh, um, that, that the student made. Uh, one of the biggest complexities still is what I, would, what I call a non-custodial parent. Um, problem. The, um, Steve has outlined the, the sort of three-legged stool. The idea is that the, the cost of college should be shared by the beneficiaries. The, the, the country is a beneficiary, the student is a beneficiary, um, and uh, uh, who's the other beneficiary? I for the institution. The institution. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, in some cases, the uh, uh, a dilemma that colleges have is that they expect the parents to make a contribution. Mm -hmm. In some families, there are 50% of American marriages result in divorce. Mm -hmm. Not all divorces are amicable. Mm -hmm. In some of those cases, one of the parents uh, refuses to be a participant in the in the in the payment of the, right. and the college then has to decide: uh, Is it okay for for its donors, its other students, and uh, to make up? For what a parent isn't willing to do, but is able to do, because because they have you have their financial. So the the, the whole story of, of 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 college debt is very complicated indeed, and very much uh, uh, mis misunderstood and and uh, and easily politicized and easily politi politicized. <laughs> yes. All right. Um, so getting into politics a little bit, if the Biden plan to forgive a, por uh, forgive a portion of student debt for eligible borrowers were to make its way through the courts and become a reality, what impacts would that have on higher education? Uh, would it spur discussion about uh, sounder policy for college affordability moving forward? Would it encourage more college enrollment uh, with the precedent that some debt will be forgiven? Um, what are the potential pitfalls, though, in, including debt forgiveness um, being seen as unpopular um, for, I, I, for people that didn't go to college? I think both of us are in the same, same place. We think, on, in general, I think it's a, it's a, it's a bad idea. Um, uh, it's certainly, uh, there's no proposal to, uh, um, to eliminate all student debt forever, mm -hmm. although there are free college proposals out mm -hmm. there, and I very much with Steve. I think that's a mistake. I think free college, uh, um, I think low, I think affordable college is an absolutely central public policy goal. But free college is, is uh, and the countries that come closest to that, well, I, I don't want to get into the, uh, get into the differences there, but um, it's, uh, uh, you sh uh, families should be, and students should be, should be prepared to anticipate some debt. It ought to be, it ought to be reasonable. Uh, but I think having skin in the game is critical. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with you. You know, I mean, I think debt forgiveness is more about politics than it is about really addressing the core questions of college affordability and a sustainable economic model for mm -hmm. families to pay 
or something. If they would announce tomorrow that the amount that they're planning to do that was would go would go to the, the Pell Grant, mm -hmm. and of course they can't announce that tomorrow because Congress controls the Pell Grant. And, and the thing is, the politics is that, that at least the president claims that the executive can, can make a decision about, about forgiving, forgiving the debt. And I think we're, you know, we're talking about the, the, uh, the wrong things we ought to be. We ought to be funding the Pell Grant at a much more, much more aggressive level so that people can look forward. And that's what would affect college. I think paying off the debt of people who've already had debt isn't going to affect the financing of, of, uh, of any college. It's really what the future is. And, and the feds, feds could make a big dent in, 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 in having that future be more rosy and, and productive and effective for everybody. And making sure that Pell Grants or their equivalent were also available for non-collegiate-based apprenticeship yes. programs mm -hmm. and yes. trainings. Yeah. Because, again, mm -hmm. like we said at the beginning, Same not time. everybody needs to go to college. Right, right. right. So if, uh, if I'm hearing you guys right, that you, you feel like the, uh, the tools are all in place. It's just taking advantage of what, what's there and, 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 and making sure that we're funding the right things. And developing a sustainable public consensus behind the importance of education and that's all that's hard. the trick yeah <laughs> that's the trick all right uh, folks we are uh you're listening to public policy this week on kymn radio am 1080 and fm 95.1 broadcasting from downtown northfield minnesota i'm rich larson my ho my co-host is joe moravchik we're talking today with steve poskanzer and dan sullivan about college affordability let's let's discuss how individuals and families can best prepare for the costs associated with a college education. About 20 years ago, my wife, Chris, researched and then enrolled us in 529 plans for what at the time was our young daughters uh, in preparation for college. Those daughters are now in college, and the 529 funds support that. Tell our listeners what a 529 plan is. How important is it for families to invest in a plan like a 529 years in advance of college? Well, a, five, a 529 plan uh, allows, allows people to, to contribute to a fund that, that uh, is intended for the use of uh, college, to, to be used for college expenses for their students uh, without having to pay income tax on the, mm -hmm. on the, on the money. And it, it also, its appreciation isn't taxed uh, through the, through. So it's a very, um, it's a very efficient uh, uh, if in fact, uh, I, th this is just a side story. I, we, we invested in 529 plans when they first came out, but in New York, the plan was managed so badly that the that the, so value, true. the yeah. value of the investment declined every year. Oh, dear. That was New York. Alaska. <laughs> it's right. interesting you say that. We our plan was in Alaska because you know New York had its problems. But Alaska had this great 529 yeah. plan. I wish I had put my money in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> that was all to my wife's credit. She researched all that. I, there's one other thing. I, there's one other co uh, planning thing that you, that I, I think people should come to understand early uh, uh, what opportunity costs are. And uh, one of the one of the most important oppor opportunity costs of a college decision is choosing a college, is knowing what the four-year graduation rate is mm -hmm. of the college that you're that you're attending. Um, and I can say this, Steve doesn't have to say it. If you, if you go to go to Carleton College, the probability that you're going to graduate in four years is just about 90%. And it's 90% for everybody, <clears throat> regardless of their ACT score. Um, and college four-year graduation rates in, 
institutions, other institutions in Minnesota, can be as low as 25% or 22%. Uh, the probability of graduating from a four-year college if you start in a two-year college is even worse. Uh, the, it's, it, it looks like it's got to be cheaper, but it takes longer, uh, and, and it, uh, students end up turning away from college because the experience isn't rich, rich enough. So. Um, I think that's coming to understand the benefits of, of choosing a college with a with a. Dan's point is absolutely critical. You can't think about college affordability without also looking at college completion. Yeah. If you pay money and you don't even get a degree, you've lost time and money, and it's a terrible outcome. And here's a little, to my mind, a little dirty secret about much of American higher education, we should be looking exactly like Dan says at four-year graduation rates. Mm -hmm. right. And yet far too many institutions will talk about their six-year graduation rate and nobody expects to be going to college for six years and they should. Right. We have families listening that are going to be preparing their young students for college someday. Great discussion on Pell Grants. We just introduced the 529 what is institutional aid? Um, can you talk a little bit about what that is? Well, it's, what? it's what Steve talked about earlier. It's, it's, it's money the institution uh, either has as, because it has gift income, right. either, either current gift income or endowment if, if gift income. But uh, most institutions, not all institutions, also discount. They basically, they, basically um, they don't have the cash to back it up, but it's like selling a product for less than less than you otherwise would for certain 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 purposes so mm -hmm. in, anything that uh, institutional aid is a combination of what I call what, what you would call funded institutional aid which is backed by cash and unfunded institutional aid which is just a discount where we're saying to to a family we this goes back to the competition for for mm -hmm. students who can make a difference in the education of others right. uh, that institutions are willing to discount to bring uh, students they believe uh, who they believe are going to have a powerful positive impact on others, mm -hmm. and that includes the, the the this started happening in college when colleges finally got serious about about diversity mm -hmm. and, and giving mm -hmm. opportunity to go to college to yep. uh, students of color and low income students who couldn't uh, couldn't do it before. And when I was fundraising around this, I would say, you know, you should be willing to buy. Some of that diversity. That diversity is is there. It's improving enrich, educational quality for everyone. To enrich the experience of mm -hmm. your students in college, prepare them for a world uh, it, uh, that's going to get only more diverse. And so, so therefore, that that subsidy should you, you should accept that. This is part of how the institution's responsibility to make college affordable right. steps forward. Okay. A place that isn't generous in financial aid, a place that isn't putting its resources behind getting the best students and getting the best faculty is not being a responsible steward of right. its dollars. That institution really shouldn't be raising its tuition costs because it's passing it along to someone else as opposed to doing what it can do to keep college still affordable and get people through completion on time. Mm -hmm. Steve, you touched on this a little bit before. Actually, Dan, you did too. I'll give you guys an example. One of my very closest friends uh, has a daughter who's getting ready to uh, choose a college. And she is a very, very sharp kid. Uh, very, very smart kid. They live in upstate New York. Um, she's got the skills, um, probably a test course too, to go to the Rhode Island School of Design, right? right? 
my 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 friend is is I mean he looks at that and he shakes his head. There's just no way that in in, my, in his mind makes any sort of financial sense, especially when a, a school like Syracuse is offering her a phenomenal uh, 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 college aid mm-hmm. package. Um, so, should families consider making price-based choices? This is uh, this is the question. Um, what other considerations uh, go into that decision? Um, considering the you know the abilities that other students that might might attend or a particular institution offer uh, a classmate. So I mean yes they should make price based uh, they, they they ought to cons- consider the cost but they but those costs need to be considered in relationship to the short and the consumption and investment benefits uh, mm-hmm. as well and and those that calculation might be different for all kinds of you know students are different families are different and. Um, uh, American higher education is very diverse. There are lots of choices out there with different combinations of those, of costs and benefits that you, um, but sure. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. Absolutely, you should look at price, okay? But you need to look at price in this full context where, you know, a low price but a low graduation rate right. is not a good investment. Right. A higher price with a quick four-year graduation rate and jobs that people are going to earn a good income when they graduate from, you need to look at price in its context, but absolutely it's relevant. Are those ratios, do those ratios tend to stay, um, like equate to each other? Or are there did those, I mean, price versus graduation rate? Is there a, is there a, uh, Yes. Connection there? Yes. One of the things that colleges, we didn't talk about the other things college spends spend money on, but the kinds of things that um, colleges, not, it's not just technology. Some of the people they spend money on are people who are, who are facilitating student success and facilitating mm-hmm. uh, graduation rates. Yeah. And so the, the wealth of an institution and its graduation rates are always correlated, but the flip side of it is that there are wealthy institutions that don't work hard enough at this, and there are less wealthy institutions that work really hard at, at, at retention. And yeah. you can find those find those things out. Uh, you're, you're a St. Olaf alum. Uh, privately, I can share with you um, what the what the actual uh, cost of attending uh, St. Olaf is if you take into account the opportunity costs we've been mm-hmm. talking about. And it looks really good long-term, yeah. I yeah. have to tell you that. And I will tell you, too, at St. Olaf, it was pounded into our heads almost on a daily basis that uh, – People come to St. Olaf graduate in four years. You bet. I, I mean, they and, and they were telling me that by the, the second semester of my senior year. People who come to St. Olaf graduate in four when years. When I went to college in 1961, in the opening convocation, the, and this was this was true of just about every college or university in the country, is somebody would say, "Look to your left and look to your right." Yeah. Uh, next year at this time, only only two or only one of you will will, will still be here, as as if that were. a a good thing. A good right. thing. Right. The law school is a lot like that that first yeah, semester, right? right? Absolutely. Right, right. We've moved past it. Okay. <laughs> but a good college or university will keep people on track yes. and graduate yes. them in four years without too much debt, feeling loyal to their institution, hopefully able to support it someday. But that does cost. Yeah. Uh, Minnesota offers post-secondary enrollment options, PSEO, for high school students. That's an opportunity to earn college credits during high school tuition-free. How important is PSEO to families attempting to cut college costs or even attending community college before attending a four-year institution? Well, I would say most, most families use P- PSEO not to cut college costs but to, but to enhance college pre- preparation mm-hmm. to, get a, mm-hmm. to get a jump on what it's like to be in, uh, to be in college they can. Yep. Uh, of course, they could, they could graduate early if they because mm-hmm. yep, those are those are college credits and some people do most most students 
love the experience and, and want to want to keep learning and they and mm -hmm. so they so they don't uh, try to graduate earlier I, I mentioned earlier that uh, going to community college first looks like it's a it's a it's a good idea mm -hmm. I've, I've done research on this and written written on this issue um, and, and things just don't don't add up the community colleges have been starved worse than any oh, yeah. any it's kind terrible. of institution for resources they, they can't raise any money nobody gives them any money yeah. Uh, and so their ability to handle and, and do the kinds of things you would hope could happen for students in community college is severely restricted by their, by their revenue basis that they have. So students don't graduate from two-year colleges at very, very high levels. They don't transfer to four-year colleges anywhere near at the, at the levels that students thought they were. And, and then they don't graduate two years after they come in, and part of that's the arrogance of the receiving institution sometimes. The, the other, it's not only that, they, there, there is some uh, there is this myth out there that students graduate from six years at six years in college at the same rate if they start in a community college. Mm -hmm. But that's only if you start counting after they get to the four-year college. Right, right. They graduate in eight years as, as uh, frequently as... Uh, so uh, community college could be, uh, could be uh, if, we, if we thought about it in the right way, a powerful and important uh, and, and cost-saving for, for getting a four-year degree, but it doesn't work that way. What are your thoughts on free community college? What, 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 as, as if someone were to you know graduate from high school, and like we say, that college isn't for everybody, but someone might not sure, right? Go to go to try a community college for for however long. It, and it, see it, it is it is already essentially free for for low to moderate income students. Okay, because yeah, Pell applies there, yep. uh, and mm -hmm. so it's. It's, uh, you the typically only don't live on campus, so you don't, don't have live a room on campus. and board. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. Okay. And so, the, uh, again, the people who benefit are high-income people. Okay. All right. Um, gentlemen, we like to give our guests the final word on this program. Um, so what are some concluding thoughts? What, what did we miss in this conversation? Steve, we'll start with you. Uh, you know, look, I think that there are definite problems in American higher education, and affordability is right at the top of that list. But I also think it is important for us to bear in mind that despite its challenges, despite the never-ending need to keep college affordable and successful and people graduate on time, that American higher education is still one of the great success stories mm -hmm. and one of the great comparative global advantages that this country has. Yes. People from all around the world flock to colleges and universities in this country, and we develop human capital here, and the research and the learning that takes place at colleges and universities is extraordinary. I would want us to always keep in mind that this is a flawed, improvable, but it is still a treasure that this country has developed, and we should be mindful of protecting that advantage. Indeed. I, you know, I, I, I just couldn't, couldn't agree more, and I think, I think uh, another difference between American higher education and higher education elsewhere is, is the diversity. It's, a, it's not a state-run operation the, where, where uh, if you look at university education in Britain or France, um, it's not just publicly funded, it's publicly controlled in a very yeah. tight, very tight way. What Steve didn't complain about when he was president, I'm sure he complained about it when he was there, he just forgot to add, <laughs> that not only, not only did he not control the income and revenue, the income that, that the institution produced went to SUNY and they didn't spend uh. it only on 
Only on him. Only on his so institution. So true. Yeah. <laughs> that's the problem with 64 campuses in a system that's overbuilt for yeah. political reasons in New York. <laughs> and some of those campuses were really strong and some of them weren't. And the weak subsidized the strong in that yeah. state. Yeah. As we start to wrap things up, Dan, what is the Cannon Valley Elder Collegium? The Cannon Valley Elder Collegium is a liberal arts college in Northfield for old people. Hmm. And uh, we... we uh, do about 15 courses in three terms over the, they're uh, taught largely by retired Carlton St. Olaf and other faculty from uh, 200 students a term, so about 600, 600 students uh, um, in a three-term sequence. I'm teaching a course with Steve Strand uh, this afternoon, who's a retired economist from Carlton on, on uh, Capital in the 21st Century, which is Thomas Piketty's uh, famous, uh, famous book of two or three years ago. Mm. Um, and it's, a, it's one of the real attractions of retiring in Northfield, frankly. People mm-hmm. retire to Northfield looking for lots of things, but they also but they, they appreciate being able to. It costs $50 a course. It's wow. really expensive. You know. Wow. Great deal. Yeah. Great program. Steve, you have a book titled uh, Higher Education Law, The Faculty. Where can our listeners find a copy of that book? Uh, I suspect that my mother and I are the only people who have actually ever read that book. Uh, in theory, it is, it's available on Amazon if you it's want. On <laughs> it's on bookfinder.com. I looked it up. Okay, okay. Okay. I am writing a new book right now on when it's right for colleges and universities as institutions to take stances on political and economic issues. So I'll, I'll be back to plug that one when it's actually <laughs> written. Know, we didn't get into the idea of uh, uh, colleges and universities as a force for political or societal change. We, I, I skipped over that question. We're going to have to have, get to that at some other show. Yeah, as long as Dan comes back with me to do it. <laughs> if you guys will come back, we'll would love to have you both. This has been great. Interesting, informative, but let's end it here. Steve Poskanzer and Dan Sullivan, thank you for being a part of Public Policy this week on KYMN. I'm Rich Larson. My co-host today has been Joe Moravchik. Uh, gentlemen, uh, Dan and Steve, I really want to thank the two of you for taking uh, time out of your busy schedules. You're both teaching today. Uh, share your knowledge with us and our listeners um, and just give us your experience. We appreciate it. The objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities. We're on KYMN, AM 1080, and FM 95.1 each Friday morning from 10 to 11. If you don't catch the program live, you can pull up the podcast of each program here on KYMN's website or any of your favorite podcast services. Just look for our Public Policy This Week logo. Be sure to join us again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. for another edition of Public Policy This Week. Enjoy the rest of your Friday and have a superb weekend. Take care. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.